Now, I want to share something that the Lord has put on my heart and, and something that I've been praying about uh, for the past four years, actually four and a half, almost five years now. <clears throat> and so I've been sharing this in different places, not that much, but as the Lord directs, uh, I share this particular message. And as always, uh, uh, I like to share things that are practical in nature, that you can practice in your own life. Not just theology, not just doctrine, but something that you can take from God's Word and become involved in what God's doing globally. Phenomenal statistics of the growth of the church and what's taking place in nations uh, around the world. Tremendous things taking place uh, that you'll not hear on the news. Uh, it doesn't make headlines, but it does make the headlines of heaven. Hallelujah. Have your Bibles, open them with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Now we know this, and I like to say this, that the Bible, say this with me, the Bible, the Bible is, God is God speaking to me. Speaking to me. Now, you know, we believe as Christians, as uh, fundamental Bible-believing Christians, and I believe we all are, that we believe God's Word is inspired. That simply means we believe the Holy Spirit moved upon the hearts and the minds of the authors of the Bible to write what they wrote and that what they wrote is inspired by God, that God ordained what they wrote. And of course, we understand the Bible contains stories in the Old Testament, good things, bad things. Uh, it contains history. It's not a history book. It contains poetry. It's not a book of poetry. Yet we believe that all 66 books are inspired and that God moved upon the writers so that what we have, this record we call the Bible, the Word of God, is what God intended for us to understand and know, and that the majority of God's Word contains and is revelation knowledge. We believe that. That is knowledge that comes directly from God by the Holy Spirit. It's recorded for us as we read it, the Holy Spirit illuminates that word, makes it real. It becomes inspired to us or real to us. And the Holy Spirit takes that word and it becomes something that becomes a part of us spiritually and changes us or transforms us on the inside. So we grow spiritually. So I'm reading to you what God is saying to us as believers to the church. Not just what Paul is saying to Timothy, but what God is saying. And when you look at it from that perspective, the Bible takes on a different perspective. If God is saying this to us, then it is something that we need to uh, diligently listen to and apply in our lives. Amen? All right. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore I, Paul says, exhort that first of all. Everyone say first of all. Now what's that mean? means first, right? First is not second. We know that. First of all means this is the priority. This is what we should do every day. First of all, the first thing that we do. So this is God's directive to us as the church. First of all, He says, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for who? All men. Notice he did not say all Christian men or only just Christian men and women. He said all men. That's why we have listed several different kinds of prayers. 
because you pray differently for Christians than you do non-Christians. So he said these types of prayers are to be made for all men or all mankind, not just men, but mankind generally speaking. And then he says this in verse 2. He breaks this down even further for us. For kings and all, not some, but all, who are in what? Authority or in positions of authority. That we, and this is the reason that we are to pray for all men, that we, and we here refers to the church, to the believer, that we may lead a what? Quiet and peaceable life. Now today, I, for the first time, really looked up those two words. Interesting, uh, in the language that the Bible was written here in the New Testament at least, uh, the Greek definition, there's many different Greek uh, definitions for this, but uh, the word quiet means from the outside. The word peaceable means from the inside. So he's talking basically about, about peace and quietness outside, externally and internally. And if we break this down to where we're living, he's talking here about uh, the nation, the place that we live in, that we might live in a quiet and peaceable or have a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So he's talking here about the life that we live in this world and how we're impacted by society, by economics, by the world around us so that we can have peace without and within, domestically and internationally. We can have peace, live a quiet and peaceable life. So if we're not experiencing that, it's because we're not acting upon the directive of God. Simple as that. Amen. You know, we can have what God says we can have. And if we don't have it, we can't really blame God, you understand. So we have to look at ourselves. If, if my prayers are not working, then more than likely there's something I'm not doing. I need more clarification. I need more instruction. I need more insight. For example, if the radio in your car was not working, more than likely you would not drive to your favorite radio station and say, what is the problem here? My radio, the favorite channel I'm listening to, is not operating today. No, more than likely you'd look at the receiver. The receiver is the radio inside your car. And so when it comes to prayer, if there is a problem on the receiving end, it's probably not the transmitter. It's probably not God's side, right? It's probably on the receiving side. So here, I believe the Bible, and I believe that what God says we can experience. That we can have a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now, I want to share just a few things with you tonight about prayer, and mo most, more specifically about a prayer that God's been dealing with me about for the last four and a half years. And that is the prayer of intercession. The prayer of intercession. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time defining that. Uh, actually, this subject we could share, we could teach for literally 20 or 30 hours on this subject. We don't have that time. Thank God you're saying he doesn't have that time. <laughs> so we're going to just give this in a capsule, but I want to share some things with you that might help you understand the need for this kind of prayer and why we need this kind of prayer in the time in which we're living. Uh, the prayer of intercession basically is a prayer that you do not pray for yourself. It has nothing to do with you. 
It has everything to do with other people who are outside of the covenant of God, basically, or not in a position to receive God's blessings, not in a position even to receive uh, the new birth that's been available to them. So this is a prayer that we pray for others. Now, interesting enough, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, if you want to go there real quick, Matthew chapter 5, and we'll come back here in just a moment. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. Actually, let me see. I'm in back up here. Yep, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. This is the first time the word pray or prayer is used in the Bible in the Gospels, in the New Testament. If you look, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First time that Jesus talks about prayer in the Gospels. So these are the first recorded words of Jesus on the subject of prayer, where He goes into some detail, at least, in the four Gospels. So we could, we could say this is the first time that prayer is addressed in the New Testament, the four Gospels. And notice what Jesus says, But I say unto you, love your what? Now, it's easy to love our friends and those we like, but it's more difficult to love our enemies. And he's talking about the God kind of love here. Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and what? Pray. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So this is the first time that Jesus uses the word pray or talks about prayer. And he's talking about from the context of not praying for yourself, but praying for others, and more specifically, for others that don't like you. Now, why in the world would Jesus address this first? And you might be thinking, well, I prayed for my enemies and they haven't changed. Well, I think God's more concerned about you changing than your enemies. Because this is dealing with a heart issue, because if our heart's not right, then nothing that Jesus says about prayer after this will work. So he's dealing with heart issues first because that's the core of Christianity. It's inward. It's spiritual. Christianity is lived from the inside out, not the outside in. It's an inside out proposition. We're born again, spiritually recreated on the inside, and the inside is to govern the outside, to control the outside, our actions, our words, our thoughts, how we treat people. That's Christianity. And so prayer works from the premise that it is a spiritual condition, a heart condition that makes prayer productive. But it's interesting here that Jesus talks about prayer from this standpoint that we pray for others first beside, before we pray for ourselves. And really if you look through the Gospels in the New Testament, Christianity is all about, not, it's all about selflessness about what, what God can do through us for other people, not just about what He can do for me. And really, uh, if prayer is not working in, in, our, in our lives, I would check here from this standpoint first, are we only praying for ourselves and not others? Because those kinds of prayers are selfish. And if I read the four Gospels, selfish prayers and that type of life is not, not going to be productive. Those kind of prayers are not going to be answered. Seek ye first the kingdom, and His righteous, everything else you need will be added. Well, the kingdom is not a building. It's not a temple. It is a, it is a spiritual living organism. It is the body of Christ. It's the church, the kingdom of God. 
Now, let's, let's make this a little more real because when it comes to prayer, there's something that I think has hindered the work of God, and prayer really is the greatest spiritual activity that you can be involved with. The greatest spiritual activity that you can be involved with in the kingdom of God in the church right now. And I'm going to make a statement that John Wesley made, and then we'll explain that. <clears throat> John Wesley said, it seems that God is limited by the prayers of His people. That He can do nothing for humanity unless someone asks Him. Now you need to think about that statement. <clears throat> because that statement many times is contrary to what is taught in a lot of theological circles. Uh, Brother Dave and, and, and myself attended the same Bible school, college now, uh, but I'm also a graduate of another, I won't mention, another uh, uh, very well-known Pentecostal Bible school. I'm, I'm a graduate, four-year graduate of that school, and in that college I had to take a course called Systematic Theology. And not to bore you, but Systematic Theology basically... Uh, you know, you study the writings of some very famous uh, church, uh, what we call church fathers or famous people throughout the history of the church, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century and on up. You study their writings, you study what they wrote about God and about the Bible, and then at the end of the course you kind of, you know, choose and pick which one you like. That's systematic theology. So I remember when I was living in uh, Thailand, uh, I had a Buddhist monk come up to me one, one time, and uh, matter of fact, it's interesting because in Thailand, I had a uh, <laughs> the post office we used. Uh, the post office boxes were made of wood; they were sold. I think they were World War II. And I was in the post office. I go there quite often, and there were pictures of monks on the wall. And and Thailand is 99.9997 percent Buddhist. So uh, there was a guy in there. It was a monk, and of course, I had they have no name for pastor in Thailand. They don't have a Thai word for pastor. And so they use the word Ajahn, which is also the same word they use for a monk. So uh, the guy asked for my name card. I gave it on there's my name, Ajahn. He goes, oh, he thought I was a monk. So then he wanted a conversation. And so uh, he goes, I have a question for you. Because we were a part of EFT, which is Evangelical Fellowship of Thailand, all the churches, all the uh, foreign missionaries come in under that umbrella. And there were 270-some, I think, 200, over 200. And he said, i got a question for you. Why do you have so many different groups and denominations and you say, you say you serve the same God? He said, we're Buddhists. We have basically one, two uh, streams of Buddhism, which is a, not a religion. It's a philosophy. But two stream, streams of, of Buddhism. And he said, you know, basically one, but two. And you guys have one God, but you have all these denominations. Can you explain that to me? And I thought, oh, Lord. <laughs> so thank God for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so uh, the answer that came out of me was this, simply this. I said, well, you know, we all do serve the same God. Uh, the difference is this, that, you know, uh, in man's, man's attempt to understand God with natural human thinking, we come up with a lot of different ideas. And that's why we have different denominations. And basically that's what it is. It's man's attempt to use natural human wisdom to define God. So you read one commentary, you get one idea, another one, another, another, another commentary, another idea, another commentary, another idea, and you go to systematic theology, and then you're really confused. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you decide, hey, maybe I should read the Bible. 
66 authors, but one true author, the Holy Spirit. So the Bible has a tendency to straighten out our thinking if we are open-minded. Unfortunately, we have old religious thinking patterns that control us. So when you hear something, you, you automatically default to that thinking pattern. All of us do. We don't think we have any religious beliefs, but we do. We do, all of us. And so that's why we need to renew our minds to God's Word. The more we renew our minds to God's Word, the more we'll think in line with God, the more we'll understand what He's saying. Believe it, embrace it, and it will change our lives, and we'll have exactly what the Bible says. If we're not having exactly what the Bible said, there has to be an issue somewhere. Because I don't believe God lies. Do you? I believe the Bible's true. Amen. So, John Wesley made that statement. Now, when you make that statement, we come right up against what is called today and what is in everything, including most seminaries and Bible schools and a lot of music today, is God's sovereignty. Now, if you don't know what sovereignty means, I'll give you a real quick definition. Uh, and this is the one generally used by most uh, theologians, okay? Let me give it to you. Sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that all things are under God's rule and control. Everything is under God's rule and control. And nothing happens without His direction or permission. Everything that happens is a result of God's purpose and God's plan. There is absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's influence and authority. As King of kings and Lord of lords, God has no limitations because God is sovereign and He loves you. Nothing will ever come into your life that He does not either decree or allow. That's the key word right there. Allow. And so when bad things happen in life, religious thinking people said, well, you know, either you did something wrong or God allowed that or permitted that to come into your life to change you or to help you. That's sovereignty. Now, I believe in sovereignty. Don't misunderstand me. I believe God's sovereign, but I believe that God is only sovereign in His kingdom. And I believe the Bible proves that. I don't have time tonight. If we had time, we'd look at it, but I'll give it to you real quickly in a nutshell. There are more than one king. There's more than one kingdom. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. See, this will explain a lot of things to you, why things happen, and why prayer is necessary, and why God cannot and will not do anything in this earth without permission of the church. That's why nothing's happening. God's waiting, church is waiting, so nothing's happening. Now notice here in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we've quoted these scriptures many, many, many times. But I want you to look at it from a different angle, so to speak, tonight. Notice here what Paul says in verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him, that is Jesus, and given to Him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in what? Where? And things on what? Where? And things where? Notice that. Three worlds, three realms, three kingdoms. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth. Real quick. We understand the kingdom of heaven 
Jesus preached more about the kingdom of heaven than anything else. Paul preached about the kingdom of heaven. Philip preached about the kingdom of heaven. Peter talked about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven does not come by observation. It is within you. It is a spiritual kingdom. We understand that. When Jesus came to this earth, He started a spiritual kingdom in this earth. When He died on the cross, when He took the sin of the world upon Himself, He paid the penalty for the sin that, that, that actually Adam started, that plunged all humanity into and was under the bondage of that sin, slaves to sin. Jesus set us free from that bondage. Jesus defeated Satan, did not annihilate Satan, remove him from this world, but he disarmed him for the church, for the kingdom of God, the body of Christ. The moment you're born again, you're taken out of a kingdom of darkness, Colossians tells us, and you are pulled into a kingdom of light or the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom. And in that kingdom, there is a king. Jesus is his name. And we know that in that kingdom there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is a real place where God the Father lives. It's called heaven. We know that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Bible tells us, Paul said, I knew a man 14 years ago, whether in the body, out of the body, I don't know. He was caught up to the third heaven. That doesn't mean there's three classes in heaven. Business, coach, and first. No. It simply means third heaven and all Bible commentaries teach this. The first heaven is the earth's atmosphere. Second heaven is outer space where Star Trek is. Third heaven, no, that's the second space. We're going to worlds where no man has gone before. That's outer space. Third heaven is a planet where God lives. It's a real planet. It's a real place. Revelation describes it. There have been people who have died, come back to life. I've talked to some of them, and they've been to heaven. It's a real place with mountains and rivers and lakes and trees and streams and flowers. It's a beautiful place. And on that planet, there is a city called Jerusalem that's 1,200 miles cubed, 1,200 miles wide and long and high. At the top of that 1,200-mile high city is the throne of God. It's called the mountain of God. That's where God lives. It's a planet. Where did this planet come from? Where did the idea for this planet come from? It's a copy. But sin ruined it. It was a garden. It was beautiful. There weren't snow piles, I don't think. I don't know where mosquitoes came from. I don't know where that fits into the evolutionary plan. It's not God's plan. But they're here. We'll find out someday where they came from, why they're here. But that wasn't God's plan. Look in the beginning. That was God's plan. And so in the beginning we see God created Adam and Eve. And what happened? He said, Adam and Eve, you have authority and exercise dominion over everything I made for you. Is that right? Read Genesis chapter 1. You have dominion, you have authority. Adam, you are the ruler of this planet, this world. As a matter of fact, interesting enough, if you notice, uh, let me find the scripture quickly. Uh, if you look at... Uh, Psalm chapter 115, Psalm 115, verse 16. Psalm 115, verse 16. I'm going quickly. You can understand why. I have a lot to share. Psalm 115, verse 16. Notice this. Psalm 115, verse 16. The heaven, even the heavens are who? The Lord's, but the earth He has given to who? Children of men. God gave Adam and Eve the earth. You rule it. You have dominion over it. It's yours. Something happened. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. They sinned. They transferred their not natural authority, but spiritual authority into the hands of Satan. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, 
Let's look at that real quick. Luke chapter 4, verse 5 and then 6. Then the devil, taking Jesus up on a high mountain, showed him all what? Kingdoms of what? The world. See, there's a kingdom of heaven, there's a kingdom of darkness that Satan is actually, he has permission to operate in that kingdom. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, Satan is the God of this world. So our heavenly father is not the God of this world system. That's why bad things happen. And people blame it on God. Or they say it's God's sovereignty. Well, He permits it. No, He doesn't. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 to 19, and, and Matthew chapter 18, verse 19. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 to 19. Jesus said, what you bind on earth is where, bound where? What you loose on earth is what? Where does it begin? In heaven? No, on earth. Actually, the word, the Greek word, or the Aramaic word translated into Greek, translated into English, allow, or bind and loose, is permit or allow and disallow. So God is saying, what you allow, I have to allow. Because you're in charge. I can't do anything about it. What you do not allow, I'll back you up. What you say must stop in Jesus' name, heaven will back you up. But if you don't say it, heaven can't do anything. Because man has been given the earth. Are you listening to me? Look around the world today. Who's ruling the countries of this world? Huh? Angels? No. Men and women are. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus was casting, casting a demon out of a man. Matthew 8, 29. And the demon said this. Jesus, thou son of God, are you, have you come here to torment us before the what? So the demons in that man knew Jesus. And knew Jesus was coming back to this earth to rule and reign. And they thought, wait, you've come too early. Why? Because Adam's lease is still in operation. Jesus will not come back to this earth until Adam's time to rule is ended. You say, when is that? We don't know. We're believing so many thousand years, we don't know. No one knows. But at the time that lease ends, Jesus comes back, sets up His kingdom. It's called the millennial reign, 1,000 years. He'll rule. It'll be a theocracy on the earth. No voting. It'll be a theocracy. He'll rule for 1,000 years. And you, the church right now, you are being prepared for government positions in His theocracy. You'll rule on this earth. Men and women, just like us right now, will be alive on the earth. When Jesus comes back, they'll still have this mortal body, still have the sin nature in it. That's why people will still die. Are you listening to me? But you will not have your old body. You'll have a new one. You'll have a glorified body. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You'll rule and reign with Christ on this earth for a thousand years. But right now, it's man's time to rule. Right? Man's time. So when Adam sinned, he did not lose his... Natural authority, he lost his spiritual authority. Jesus regained the spiritual authority. And that's why I told his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. I give it to you. You go into all nations and make disciples of every, every nation. You make disciples in every nation. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Matthew 18, 19. Again, I say unto you, if two of you agree, where? On earth. On earth is touching anything they ask, it will be done by their Father in heaven. So their Father in heaven can't do anything until they ask. Until they ask. Are you listening to me? Now, real good scripture on that is Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, quickly. And here, Jesus saw the multitudes, verse 35. He saw the multitudes, 
and he was moved with compassion on them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. In Matthew chapter 9, and then we see in verse 37, because of that, he said to his disciples, verse 37, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the labors are what? What's the next words out of Jesus' mouth? Verse 38. Huh? Who's he telling to pray? He was speaking specifically to who at that point? Disciples. But generally speaking, we understand he's speaking to his followers, right? Believers. We are believers. We're followers. So we could say in the context he's talking to the church. Pray. Now notice. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Well, it's not my harvest and it's not yours. Is it? You're not the Lord of the harvest, are you? No. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that He, the Lord of the harvest, which is God, will send forth His labors. If God is in control of everything, why in the world does God need me to pray to convince Him to send labors into His harvest? That doesn't make sense. No, God cannot send labors into the harvest on the earth until someone on the earth asks Him, and that has to be somebody in the body of Christ. That has to be somebody in the church. Now, God is sovereign in His kingdom. But all the things that are happening in this world today, you know, there was a writer during the Vietnam War. He was, he wrote a, he was a syndicated columnist and he wrote an article that said, I'm not an atheist. I, I'm probably an agnostic. I don't know if there is a God. So I'm an agnostic, and he said, but I hear all these ministers say God's in control. He's running everything on this earth. If He is, He sure has everything in a mess. Huh? He has everything in a mess. He's not running everything on this earth. Satan is controlling this world system. He's the God of this world, not the God of heaven. He is the author of sickness and sin and disease. Jesus said, and I don't know any higher authority than Jesus. Do you? Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief comes. And he's not talking about his father, is he? No. The thief comes but for to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have more of the same. No. I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So who kills, steals, and destroys? Satan. So that's not in God's plan. You say, well, you know, God allowed it. Well, from the standpoint, I could, I could use this illustration. You could get up on the roof of this church tonight, and there's probably snow and ice up there, and through carelessness or through an accident, you could fall off and break both legs. Well, would you say God pushed you off the roof? No. Why? You say gravity, you know, gravity caused it to happen and God created gravity. Well, from the standpoint that God created the law of gravity, but God didn't push you. Matter of fact, God gave you a brain. And you should follow that brain probably if it works right and not get up on the roof when it's dangerous. So in the Old Testament, God told Israel, if you follow my commandments and do these things, none of these evil things will come upon you, right? But the moment they disobeyed God and did the exact opposite, all these curses and all this sickness came on them, not from God, but from Satan. Well, you say, God allowed it. Sure, He allowed it because they violated the rules that God put into place for their protection. God will allow you to leave this church tonight and go out and commit a crime, but God does not commission you to do that. You're a free moral agent. God created you with a capacity of self-direction. You have a will. You can do whatever you want to do. 
And even God Himself cannot stop you. Huh? So from the standpoint, God created the law of gravity, but God did not intend gravity to hurt you. But if you violate that law through carelessness or whatever, disobedience, then that law that was meant to protect you can harm you. From that standpoint, yes, God allowed it, but He did not commission it. You understand that? So everything that's happening in this world today that kills, steals, and destroys does not come from the kingdom of light or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It comes from the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. You have to recognize the source of your problem before you can do anything about it. God's not your problem, my brother and sister. He is your friend. He's not against you, He's for you. Hallelujah. No, we have an enemy, and He's against you. Now, Ephesians chapter 6, I don't have time, but you read the whole, the whole 6th chapter, beginning at the 10th verse, and you'll see Paul said in verse 12, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. You'll never change anything in your life or your family's life from natural things only. It'll never happen. Nothing great that ever happened in my life or my family's life in the last 40 years of full-time ministry has come through natural means or methods. It's come by the Spirit of God which caused me to act in this natural physical world, but I am in a kingdom. If I operate with kingdom principles, then the things in this natural world are subject to change. Sickness and disease is a part of this natural world. It's really a part of the curse of sin that came upon this earth. And it's in this earth, it's all around us, but because of God's laws in the kingdom that says I can walk in this life, with divine health and healing, then I can, I can eliminate elements of the curse that came on this world through sin because I'm walking in spiritual laws and principles. You understand that? Faith brings that into existence in my life. doesn't mean we're, we're not going to have any tests or trials or problems in this life. You're going to as long as you're in this world. And the devil's going to see to it, but you can walk through them. Because you have inside information in the Bible. You have help of the Holy Spirit. You have the name of Jesus. You know how to pray. You know how to exercise faith. You know how to walk through this world with God's help. That's the difference. I was sick all my life until I discovered what the Bible said. Matter of fact, I'm not supposed to be alive today. I contracted a, a blood poisoning disease at the age of three. Two doctors said I'd be dead, but I'm still here. And it wasn't because of medical science. I, I thank God for medical science. And I, I believe in medical science. I believe in doctors and hospitals and medicines because they're fighting sickness and disease. Thank God for them. That's man's natural method of healing and health and healing. We need that. But there's something beyond that called divine healing. Hallelujah. And I needed divine healing. Thank God it was there. Amen. So... This is what I want you to see. Matthew or Ephesians chapter 6, he goes all the way through the armor of God. And verse 18 says, Praying, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. All the armor of God is there for prayer. That's what it's there for. And if you read 
Verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness of this world, and wicked spirits in the heavenlies. Those are the levels of organization in Satan's kingdom. And they're in operation in this world system. They're all around us. You can see it. They're trying to influence leaders. They're trying to influence presidents. They're trying to influence dictators. They're trying to influence men and women to kill other men and women, to create havoc, economic uh, problems and social problems around this world. And they're, they're doing an awesome job of that. But that's why the church is here. The church is here that we're the light. And the church has the authority to pray, to change things, and to stop things. But if we rely everything on God and say, well, He's in control, He's sovereign. If it's God's will, He'll make it happen. Nothing will happen. Nothing will happen. Nothing will happen. It's God's will that every man be saved. But you, don't, you notice not every man's getting saved unless somebody preaches. You notice that? God needs people to get involved on this earth. And so we have to understand that that armor primarily, not the only reason, but primarily is prayer armor. Because once you get involved in prayer and specifically intercession, there will be battles. Because Satan understands that's the kind of prayer that changes things. I don't have time, but read Daniel chapter 10. Read Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18 is Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you look at that region, and Abraham said, got down to 10 people, that's, he was interceding, 10 people, and God said, I'll spare it for 10 righteous sake. Well, there's more 10 righteous in Omaha. You hear people say, God's going to judge this country. Well, there's more than 10 righteous here. And if he withheld judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for 10, guarantee you there's more than 10 righteous in Omaha and in the United States of America. Amen. Amen. Now, we're the only reason that nothing's happening. Believers. The only reason that darkness is not controlling this world. Let me tell you something, my brother and sister. The church will not grow. People will not come into the body of Christ like they should and can. And revival will not take place without intercession. That's why the devil has attacked that so much. In the early 80s, there was a movement of intercession, and it got sidetracked through fanaticism and craziness. And it all stopped. There's not going to be any revival without intercession. Zero. Jesus, as a matter of fact, that ministry is so important. If you look in the Bible, He ever liveth right now to make intercession for us. That's His ministry right now at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. He ever liveth to make intercession. Now, I haven't even got into intercession, what it is. But I want us just to pray for two or three minutes here in closing. I went, way, I went beyond. Sorry about that. I said I'd be done at 8.45. We're going to be done at 8.30. Is that okay? We're going to pray for a little bit. But I want to encourage you. It's been on my heart. God is looking for people who are, who are available to intercede. There are no new births in the body of Christ without intercession. You got saved because someone prayed for you somewhere. And you'll find out about it in heaven. The Bible says when Zion travails, and that's referring to the church, when Zion travails, brings forth children. Paul said in Galatians 
in whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. That means he travailed the first time to get them saved and travailed the second time so when they heard the word of God, it would make sense to them and they would receive it and they would be changed. We think, well, if people get anything, they'll come back. No, we got to pray for them. That's selfishness. We need to pray for others first. Are we praying for others? Or are we only praying for our own children, our own family, and no one else? Huh? That's selfishness. We need to change. We need to begin to pray for others and be open for the Spirit of God to move us in this area of intercession. Now, you can intercede when you know, with your own known tongue, when you know what to pray for. When you don't know what to pray for, in Romans 8, 26, the Holy Spirit will help you with groanings that cannot be uttered in articulate speech. And that's not something you just kind of create on your own. That has, to be, uh, that has to be motivated by the Holy Spirit. 